is a show about the revolutionary counterculture and movements of the 60s. Yeah. And the question of the show is basically because people my age and younger tend to have a very negative or cynical view of the 60s. They, they do? Th- yeah, they think... Because they, you know, they know it from the narratives of their parents. So they think it was just people who would become yuppies and liberals pretending to be revolutionaries, but it was all about flower power and sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, that's uh, relatively, you know, uh, limited to one portion of the that movement of the 60s. I mean, there were some, uh, myself included, that continued, that didn't just flower power out. Exactly. And so that's the purpose of this show, is although there was a, a lot of failure and a lot of cringy stuff. There were also real revolutionaries whose history we ought to know. So that's why I'm really honored to have you on the show. I'm talking to Ben Morea of Black Mask and Up Against the Wall Motherfuckers in his Hell's Kitchen apartment. Uh, thanks for joining us. How are you feeling today? Thank you. Doing very well. Thanks. Great, great. Yeah, why don't we just start off by having you tell us a little bit about the groups that you were in in the 60s and how they came about and what you did. How far back should I go? Maybe we can start with Black Mask. Huh? You, you, Black Mask yeah. pre, uh, predated Up Against right. the Wall. All right. So myself and uh, a few friends of mine, we we were what you uh, involved with the arts. We were artists primarily, but that wanted to make art available to the public rather than just the elite and uh, the money class. But at some point, we felt that was totally insufficient. And uh, we decided to uh, put the journal Black Mask out, which was an attempt to combine art and politics to show that art could just take us so far, but there had to be or there should be a political connection to make it uh, viable and to make it uh, valuable in the change of the of the society as we know it. So we started Black Mask. There were actually uh, just really two of us in the beginning that were that had started out as artists, but that then morphed into a black mask into this effort to combine politics and art but and was the first action um tossing the the flyers out at St. Patrick's Cathedral no that was um that was actually later so the in the beginning like i was saying there was just the two of us but the effort seemed to really affect uh, a wider group and people were really interested in it and started um, coalescing around Black Mask. So Black Mask became like a small group of people even though it was primarily the um, effort to put out this journal. At some point it became so politically oriented that we felt that the journal itself was no longer 
a good vehicle that we became more completely uh, politicized and became actually street activists. And at, in that moment of transition that the uh, St. Patrick's thing came about then. It seemed like with Black Mass, like you were interested uh -huh. in kind of radical art from like the early 20th century. Yeah, Dada, surrealism. Oh, Dada and surrealism. And then you were also interested in kind of anarchism from the early 20th century. Like you were Correct. in these reading groups and study groups. Right. And at some point in the transition to the motherfuckers, both of those things blur. Like art and politics blend or meld together, but they're not really ideological. It's more this lifestyle thing. And like, so it, it moves from this like intellectual bohemian thing of like European art and classical anarchism into this countercultural lifestyle thing. That's my sense of it. But how do you feel about that transition? Yeah, no, that, that's a pretty good view. I mean, um, you know, I, I'm sure people remember the, the Vietnam War and that, that made a big impact on us as a generation. Like we felt that this war of, a, of oppression was being carried out in a sense in our name, like being that we were all American as well. And uh, we felt like that that war had to be ended. And um, even if it meant taking our lives in the effort to stop the war. And at the same time, uh, the civil rights movement had become extremely militant and you had uh, different, like Black Panthers, SNCC. And so we felt like we were part of that whole new move toward uh, a radical change. And uh, we thought that Actually, we believe that a revolution in America was possible. Uh, uh, we really felt it, it could happen in our time. And it might sound strange, but we woke up every day thinking that that revolution was getting closer. We believed in it. And this was uh, late 64, 65 when Black Mask Correct. started. Yeah. And that St. Patrick's action, you tossed out flyers against the Vietnam War because the New York Cardinal at the time or something right. was very pro. Pro. pro uh, and also, I, I was interested that in your, your interview with Matt, actually, I'll post the video uh, on the podcast notes. Um, you said that Black Mask was a, uh, a reference to Fanon's black skin white mask. So the black struggle was also really important to you. And it was extremely important. And as you say, the Fanon, I mean, that's where the title Black Mask came from, because he had written a book, uh, uh, Black Faces, White Masks. Mm -hmm. So to refer to the fact that the black population in the colonial world really saw themselves on, on the white uh, side of things and so he had written a critical uh, anti-colonialist 
journal uh, book, and he had called it uh, Black Faces, White Mask. So we reversed that. Yeah. And so uh, starting out with those two uh, struggles in mind in 64, 65, you're really in the heart of what uh, matters to the, the broader movement of SNCC, SDS, Correct. Exactly. radicals, this movement that's bubbling up. Um, but you went, your trajectory was far more radical, far more towards the armed struggle, revolutionary end of things. What do you think uh, from that early stage set you apart from what would become like the Yippies and SDS and that kind of thing? Well, at some point we, we realized that if the effort wasn't militant enough and complete enough, we would end up with just a um, a slight change, a liberal veneer, so to speak. And, and we were influenced really strongly by people like Robert Williams, Negroes with Guns. We were extremely close to the Panthers. Uh, I, I was friendly with Rat Brown. We, we gravitated toward the most militant end of the civil rights struggle rather than the um, the middle group that just wanted to have an easier road for black people. We wanted the road changed completely, not made easier for one group, but changed, taken down. I have a question. So like there's this moment in 67 or 68 where you're saying like it feels like revolution is really possible in America or maybe globally or something. And, you know, like you're saying now that you guys felt like you had to really intensify your militancy to, to for that to happen. Right. But my question is, I don't know if it's psychological or emotional or social or spiritual, but looking back, why do you think more people didn't want to intensify or didn't want to participate and that escalation in the U.S., like among your peers in New York, but even nationally, like what was it that prevented people from taking that step or leap? Like, how do you reflect on that? The commitment demanded total commitment. It, and a lot of people were not ready for that. But that was growing. I mean, when we started, there, there were... It was such a, minor, a minority group that, that saw the need for an extreme militant response. But slowly that was and uh, growing. And we had so many visitors, like Black Mask up against the wall, we had so many visitors from revolutionary movements throughout the world that would come stay with us, like people from the Japanese Zengakoran, Provo, situationist. I mean, it was like we could feel that this was going to be a global effort. And in order to carry it out, you had to believe it was possible. If you thought this is not possible, then how could you possibly give your life for it? So we, we actually believed it was possible. And we, in, like I, I say this, 
and you know, even though some people might think it's an extreme statement, but like Native Americans have a, a saying about today is a good day to die when they go into struggle. Well, that's how we felt each day as we awoke that it was might be our day to die. I mean, that's how committed we were. We felt like either this war ended or we would, uh, we would uh, relinquish our lives. But at some point, it felt like it stopped growing or less people started to kind of be convinced or have that commitment. Or did you feel like at some point there weren't enough people kind of joining you in that commitment or something? Like what happens between 68, 69, 70, where something shifts? Maybe? The, re the resistance in America became uh, stronger and more uh, structurally and the effortless assassination of militants was was expanding and you could feel that not enough people were continuing the struggle to join the struggle and that on, on a personal level like there was attempts at assassination against me and so I felt like in order to be continuing in the struggle rather than be eliminated through some artificial means, uh, it was necessary for me to go into uh, off the grid, so to speak. And this was like 67, 68? 68, 69. Okay. And uh, you know, I've read a bunch of memoirs of revolutionaries from the 60s, and pretty much all of them have this sentiment that sometime in 68, 69, uh, even earlier, other places, there was this feeling in the air that like the revolutionary upsurge was now had peaked and was now on the way down and this is when a lot of people start fleeing the cities and doing land projects um or just becoming social democrats or, or just liberals. Yeah, you know i i really object though to that concept of fleeing the city a lot of people realize that the city was their turf that if we were going to destroy their culture and take uh, uh, make a change it, that was necessary in America, we had to become more uh, self-sufficient. Like you can't you can't be a revolutionary in the full sense by going and going to the supermarket. You have to find a way to grow food, to hunt, to provide. So that then the system had less power over you, and you could then work together to. So a lot of the back of the land movement was not an escape, mm. but quite the opposite. It was rather a realization that if we didn't have the land, they always had the power. Mm. And I and I feel that even stronger now mm. that that the, the need is to, for people to move into a non-city uh, environments and to build self-sufficiency so that then as the system collapses, you don't collapse with it. You have the alternative. And uh, so I think, you know, a lot of... There's a lot of negativity sometimes I hear in to people's voices about 
back to the land as if it was some escape. Well, we're going to get away from the struggle. But there was some realization that that was part of the struggle. I think, yeah, I think part of that misconception is that people just connected to hippie communes and they see it as a hippie thing. Um, but right, of, but there were those right. the, uh, with parallel movements. Yeah, yeah, and we talked to Peter Coyote a lot about that too. Um, I guess just shifting gears from that a bit, what did you think of the hippies when they became the kind of iconic face of the counterculture? It, it's a complicated. Uh, question because there were strong part of the hippie movement was the commodification to make it safe and commercial and the struggle that we were after transcended completely that hippie movement we actually felt but at the same time we thought it was useful that there was at least a community out there that we could hide in, that we could uh, work within so that we wouldn't stand out as, as strongly. Like, if there were nothing but militants, then, then the uh, armed opposition, being police or and or right wing, could single out who the militants were. But if the militants were embedded, it's like Mao was talking about the fish in the sea. If this, the militants were embedded within this culture, so we supported the cultural effort to, to, to break from a white American middle-class culture, but we didn't think that that was an answer, but we felt it was useful to us it was our sea that we as the fish could be, swim amongst. That's how we felt. Yeah, I think it's interesting, like, you know, thinking about your life and trajectory or like what we were talking about earlier. It's like in the late 50s or early mid 60s, you have more of these like bohemian intellectual kind of beatnik kind of, you know, it's more sophisticated, so to speak, people who are, understand like European avant-garde, et cetera. But then by 66, 67, you see this kind of youth culture of like hippies coming into like the Lower East Side or Haight-Ashbury. So maybe, but they're like teenagers, you know, so there's like almost like a generational gap and you're maybe almost like 10 years older than some of these people. So you would be kind of like a sophisticated intellectual leader. And then you have these crazy teenagers, but they're kind of coming in and growing the movement, but as a kind of lifestyle or something like they're inhabiting it as a youth cultural alternative. So there's this kind of meeting of like a more smaller kind of intellectual, sophisticated elite, you know, re bohemian versus like this teenage kind of youthful embodied kind of lifestyle that comes around 67, 68. So there's this kind of melding of these two almost micro generations, so to speak, or something, it seems. Yeah, I mean, obviously, but you have a tendency to overlook in that in that in that in that view you overlook the fact that what you call intellectually they were really committed rap revolutionaries within that group so 
we cohabitated with what you called intellectual, like the beats, like we came out of the beat, but the beats represented a rejection of America. And so we grew out of that and we carried the rejection of America further. Not only did we reject America as the beats did, but we wanted to bring it down. And that was a qualitative difference. And nobody ever recognizes that. Like we came out of something, but we altered that something that we came out of. We radicalized it. We intensified it. Cosmic greetings, everybody. Antifada producer Andy here with a special tour announcement. I will be traveling the country to celebrate the two-year anniversary of my book, I Want to Believe, Posadism, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism, a.k.a. The Green Book, available from Pluto Books. In conjunction with my essay, Mass Politics and the Spirit of May 28th, available at sm28.org. So this is a tour where half the dates will be at bookstores talking about the Green Book, and the other half will be at Radical Spaces. And I'm hoping to meet a lot of Antifada listeners and introduce them to some of the local projects that I really believe in and care about around the country. So listen closely, because here's the dates. New Orleans, May 5th at Metalworks. Tucson, Arizona. May 9th at BCC, the Blackledge Community Collective. Stories Books in Echo Park, Los Angeles, May 11th, with friend of the show Anna Merlan. Tamarack Bar and Restaurant, Saturday, May 14th in Oakland, California. The SJAC Community Center in Portland, Oregon, Monday, May 16th. Third Place Books in Seattle, that's the Ravenna location, on May 20th. I think I'll be talking with uh, Phil from Red May. May 23rd, we'll be at the Landing Strip Community Garden in Minneapolis. Hopefully the weather will be nice. And finally, Pills and Community Books in Chicago on May 27th with Jared Shanahan. I'm going to post all those details on my Twitter, and I'll probably post an update throughout the month if any of the dates change. But hope you can make it out to some of those dates. Another remarkable thing about your demographics in the the Lower East Side, is you had like a lot of veterans and Latino street kids. It was not the white SDS type group that people think of when they think of the revolutionary counterculture. Yeah, that it, it was not. But there was, as you say, there was obviously the, the SDS radical group as well. Mm-hmm. You know... It was just such an amorphous blending of all these different shades. Like you talk about runaways as if, well, they're just running away. But within the runaways, we could sense that here was a group of youth rejecting that which they grew up in. And we felt that was necessary. Um, You couldn't have a revolution without rejecting that that you left behind. And I think uh, a big part of the revolutionary optimism of the time is that the revolution would come from uh, some combination of the youth movement and just outcasts in general. People like, you know, well, you yeah, but also primarily, pr- predominantly and primarily a, a strong effort from the minority black community. That was mm-hmm. essential. The connection to the black struggle was essential. Um, 
so I guess, did you see the revolutionary movement that was forming as primarily counterculture, or was it like a, an alliance between counterculture and other marginalized, maybe working class people? It was a combination. Mm-hmm. The black struggle, what, what people, the Marxists negatively speak about the lumpen. We felt the lumpen were crucial. Actually, the, the, lumper, the Lumpen were actually a more revolutionary group. And because this, this revolution that we saw in America was coming from these minority groups, not coming from the factory, but coming from the street, from the black, from the youth, from marginalized groups. And so... We celebrated that. We saw that as uh, as a as different than the 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 uh, um, uh, eighteen hundred Marxists into the early twentieth century Marxist movement. We felt that this we could go beyond that. Like Marxism you know, would just bring you to a bigger bureaucracy and a more centralized world. We rejected that totally. And we were totally anti-Marxists. Yeah, the garbage action is interesting to me to think about because it's like in relationship to this strike of like sanitation workers, but really it's sort of in solidarity with the people who are kind of suffering the effects of the strike or something. So you see... You had garbage on the Lower East Side 10 feet tall. I mean, not just like a few garbage cans overfilled. I mean, you had mounds of garbage 10 feet tall that these people had to live in while the wealthy people had private carting services. And so for those who don't know, you uh, had an action where you took trash bags on the subway and brought it to Lincoln Center and put it in the fountain. uh, vans full, uh-huh. vans full. So we did both. Trash for trash was that the name of it? Uh, a cultural exchange, right. garbage for garbage. Garbage for garbage. Like we thought of Western culture as garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those kinds but of nobody actions... recognized that also Lincoln Center, where that was built, that was a viable, strong. Mixed community, one of the strongest mixed communities in in Manhattan, where a lot of musicians, cultural people, Thelonious Monk lived there, Miles Davis. I mean, it was a cultural haven, and they destroyed it to put up an edifice to culture, which was the exact opposite. Mm. And they destroyed viable homes for that that the lower uh, income people had and and could flourish in so that they could have their palace, their cultural palace. So we had it was the double reason for doing what we did. But it seemed like the garbage thing was like in solidarity with the neighborhood or the community or the people on the Lower East Side and maybe, I don't know, it didn't seem as if you really made that many connections with like the sanitation workers. Or no, something. not at all. Yeah, It was, as I say, it was part of the effort to spread. Right. It's The Young Lords had the same thing. Like part of their narrative is 68 is they do this poll in Spanish Harlem, East Harlem, about what are the major issues. And people said they're garbage. 
So then they kind of gather all this garbage and they set it on fire, but it's around the same time in 68. But it's like a neighborhood-based thing. It's not... Right. It doesn't seem in either case that there was much progress in like relating to We had city no workers. no connection to the labor struggle at that time, the the garbage uh strike. Even though we support any strike. In Emmett Grogan's book, and who knows if this is true, but he claims he was around for the strike and actually brokered a deal with the mafia that controlled the sanitation company or Emmett Grogan is full of himself <laughs> yeah he, he was he a big talker ended it right uh along those lines um in 1969 1970 there was this massive we ran him out of new york <laughs> okay <laughs> we can talk more about emma Krogan. so i know him why did you run him out of new york because he was he was thinking he was he he had a, a really uh almost a negative feeling about the ghetto mm. like you know he he had this anti-black, anti-Puerto Rican sense about things. Like, how, oh, they're, they're not important. Like, they tried to interfere with our free store. Mm. That was a community-based free store. Yeah, there's some, I, I recommend everyone read his book, Ringo Labio. It's a really, there's a really amazing stories in it, but some of it is a little concerning. Some of his views about, uh, like, black people and gay people. Yeah, he, no, he- He goes he, off a little bit too much. full of it. Um, but what I want to ask along the, the lines of the, the sanitation strike is in like around 1970, you get this huge backlash to the counterculture, to the peace movement that takes the form of the hard hat riot and, uh, and unions moving in this pro Nixon direction. But you see, I, I mean, the, the term backlash is, is misleading. Mm -hmm. In other words, the Reagan counter-revolution was becoming dominant then. Mm -hmm. So it's not that it was just a backlash. It's that they realized they almost lost it. They realized how close we were getting to change. And so they countered with this Reagan counter-revolution. So I... I to. To call it a backlash is to to put part of the blame on those who were fighting to change it. So this they precipitated a backlash, but it wasn't just a backlash. It was the right wing realizing that they were about to lose it. I mean, close. They were close. Like looking all over the, the the globe. I mean, in France, you know how close they were to falling in France. I mean, nobody is, people don't emphasize how close the change was. Well, in, in France, uh, the there was like a ma major general strike, like a wildcat general strike that followed the youth movement. And in the United right. States, we never quite had any kind of rupture between the revolutionary counterculture and the working class at large in the same way. Yeah, correct. But. There were a lot of things going on that people have never talked about. Like a lot of the, those that served in Vietnam became part of the militant struggle. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why we formed affinity groups. So that there were groups of people who could do things that no, they didn't have to talk about it in a larger uh, uh, assembly. They could just do it. 
and there was a lot of that going on. Nobody's ever realized how much it went on. Yeah, I'm interested in this idea of like backlash or counter-revolution or counter-insurgency, which you see both with Nixon in 68, but also more recently, you know, like after Black Lives Matter in 2014, you kind of get Trump out of that. And then more locally, you know, Eric Adams, you know, now we have this kind of black mayor cop kind of reaction to the last eight years or so of de Blasio or something. So kind of there can be a, like an idealistic utopianism that like social progressive values will just increase and people become more enlightened and maybe people underestimate the kind of counterinsurgent kind of forces in New York City or the United States that kind of we come to see in these sort of electoral things and kind of how to withstand those moments of like counter counter revolution or something. But, you know, both Nixon in 68, but, you know, Trump, I think, represents that uh, definitely in 2016, this kind of law and order kind of But I I really, to be honest with you, Matt, I reject the concept of backlash to term because that is an insinuation that those pushing for change actually brought about this backlash. And I think that's a mistake. Wherever There's always two parallel movements. There's a revolutionary movement and a counter-revolution. They, they run at the same time. And you cannot blame the revolutionary movement for the rise of the counter-revolution. It's right. out to save itself. But those forces, you know, as they're like competing, you know, basically not to get like dialectical or something, but as one kind of grows in strength and vitality, the other one kind of responds. So I'm not saying it's the fault of one. Yeah, but, but the this, term backlash right. is but what this I kind of contestation of terrain or narrative. Or you got to expect it runs continuous through society. The revolutionary impulse to change it for the better and the anti-revolutionary impulse to keep it the same. They they run parallel all the time. Maybe to, to give another example of some of your revolutionary or militant activity, you were there at the 67 protest to so-called levitate the Pentagon, uh, which you know is in popular culture remembered as like Allen Ginsberg holding hands and... Abby oh. Hoffman. Right. But you were part of a group that actually... Actually broke into the Pentagon. And you were dressed in an all, all black and ran through military police lines and got into the Pentagon. The first people in history to get into the <laughs> Pentagon and, the, and probably the last people for a long time. So do you think that... Uh, that and represented... Norman Mailer wrote about it and he said the halls of the Pentagon were covered in blood. Hmm. That's what it costs us. Your blood, like uh, yeah. your comrades, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, why don't you tell a little bit of that story? Like, how did you? Uh, who who were the people that broke in, and what happened when you got in there? We spent, like, I and a few uh, uh, radical cohorts. I had a really close uh, um, ally from the Zengalkoran, and we had a few others. We would go around and we would... See, we had a concept called the breakaway. It's pre-Black Block. Like, the idea that we would go on a... to a a, 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 a march, a, uh, a resistance, 
and carry a sign as if to protest was sufficient, was insidious to us. We were not into protesting. We were into changing. So we went around and talked to people uh, uh, before that event you mentioned at the Pentagon about gathering in one area, which we specified how we would find each other. And so that if, if a moment for a breakaway was possible, we would be in large number rather than just five or ten of us happen to be there. So we worked on this concept of the breakaway so that we pushed all the militant and those who were ready for, for a real effort, not a protest, but a real effort to be at one area. And when we saw an opening to get into the Pentagon, we saw an opening. We, we uh, uh, reconnoitered the, uh, the uh, Pentagon and we saw there was a side door where there was no troops and no guards. They were all in the front. So we all, so we then moved up our part of the crowd to the side where the unguarded door was and broke in and fought our way in. And when the troops realized that we had come in the side door, they charged us from inside. There's a lot of, uh, that's where a lot of blood was spilled. How many of you got in? Hundreds. Hundreds, wow. Yes. But there was tens of thousands of people at this protest. Were you, right. dis were you disappointed that more people didn't join you? Well, a lot, they, a lot of them didn't realize what was happening. I mm -hmm. mean, the people that were in one area and that we could, when we started moving, they moved with us. It was more than a few hundred. Okay. I guess just uh, reading about it, it just seems like such a good uh, metaphor of like the different kinds of tactics in the 60s where one group is doing this kind of fantasy levitate the Pentagon thing and right. one group's actually trying to get in and like destroy the Pentagon. But was the distinction so clear at the time? It certainly was that clear to us. <laughs> okay. And, and so what did you think of like the Yippies and Ed Sanders kind of crowd doing doing their peaceful you see, protest? The, our, our belief then, and I, I still hold it, is it takes all peoples to to in to make an effort in the, in this struggle so some people are not able to do any more than levitate the pentagon so we don't consider them enemies it's just that we don't consider them allies as well they're not going to join us but at the same time we were friends with them. I was friends with Ginsburg and Abby. I was friends with them. But that that would not stop us from trying to bring down the system that we felt had to be stopped. And so their effort, like like we supported like um, crash pads and food on the Lower East Side, Abby Hoffman gave us a lot of money to, for the for people to to feed people and house people. We had six crash pads. And so he did his little part. 
He didn't have to like fight his way in the door, but at least he of the Pentagon, but he did something that we could use to further that struggle. So it takes all of them. It takes everybody, even it takes the liberal, if you could pull them along with you so that they support some part of what you're doing rather than just a small group of militants against America. But here you have this small group of militants, but you have a larger uh, public with you in wanting to see some change. It seems like that demonstration, I, I think it's like October 67, was the beginning maybe that like something was possible because of maybe how many people came or how violent and militant interned. And at that point, you know, that's sort of when like newsreel starts and that's when you guys kind of maybe shift from Black Mass to the motherfuckers and kind of come back to New York and start to think that like, oh, maybe we can reorganize ourselves and not be this like publish this journal, but become like a kind of right. a force but or something. Make it, I like to make it, it's not a matter, we didn't reorganize. It just, we believed in an in, in organic movement of, of effort. So Black Mass just became irrelevant at some point. The, the effort was, we had put out a statement saying, time to go to the streets. In other words, it wasn't like an organizational effort. It was a real effort to change it, to bring the struggle of, of uh, pen and paper onto the street. But at some point that becomes like existential because you have to like, you wake up and you decide, am I going to write, am I going to kind of format a journal or a leaflet today or am I going to get food for people on the, you know, you reorganize priorities and where resources go and but There's it's done, it's, it's like done organically. Yeah. Like we never had a meeting say, oh, well, let's reorganize. Let's, it just grows. It changes. We could see that in order to, to change this system that prevailed, it was going to take more than a journal. And it was ready that we had, we could, there was an opening. We could move. I'm also really interested in the international werewolf conspiracy, which you reference in some of your publications, and it listed these different groups throughout the United States and beyond that, you know, no one's ever written about, no one's heard of. Like, what were the, were these? Were there like motherfuckers all over the place that you're in touch with? Yeah, there were. There were. I was. I don't know if I would say all over the place, but there were at least ten different groups of them. And different affinity groups connected to them, like a lot of which was left unnotated. Like, for instance, there were throughout America, there were different sabotage efforts and different, and nobody's ever, you know, linked them all of them together. But there were efforts everywhere to to change. Yeah, I'm curious about this too, like this this networking or whatever you want to call it or think about it. Like, 
it seems like there's also, you know, that you guys have friends in Austin, Texas and Boston and obviously right. like the Bay Area. Right. Um, exactly. Like that. But you there's also this blending with these more countercultural kind of hippie things like Hog Farm or the Diggers or like the Free Family or whatever. So it's kind of becoming more national, but maybe also shifting. Like at some point in, in mid late 68, there's this kind of shifting and maybe there's this start to be this realization that like the kind of direct conflict, street conflict also needs to adapt or evolve, like you're saying, into these no, other questions. Or something. Yeah, but I don't think you under realize it. You don't understand. Like we felt that it took in order to really change America to really bring it down. It was going to take more than just the militants. We were going to have to have people in all strata of society, like school teachers. They're not going to go out and fight in the street, but they're necessary to, because they educate the kids to what real life possibilities are. Like they don't, so you want to get teachers on your side so they'll teach children they'll sh they'll share with children something about real life not just how to become a good worker or how to become a good citizen so you need all all strata of society so you have the militant the extreme but you have the artists you have the poets it means it's all necessary like I, that doesn't exist anymore I feel like a, a dinosaur even mentioning because that's how we thought in the 60s that it's going to take all everybody, including the workers, all, all, you know, all strata of society had to be involved with this effort to change it so that it became viable for life. Why do you think that doesn't exist anymore? I'm sorry? I, I mean, uh, the left that I'm familiar with the, the, the left that I'm familiar with tends to believe in, I guess, maybe more of like the socialist left or the DSA left. Yeah, but that's like that. that's 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 a counter revolutionary to me. Uh -huh. That's counter revolutionary. So, so you think that the, the anarchists don't have this more total social vision of revolution? They anarchists. They that's why we created the idea of affinity group. You have militants that are willing to die, so to speak, but you, you involve all of the, of, of, of the public, of the culture. Like the Marxists are elitist. Like to them, like it takes, it's this scholastic, educated group that's going to, you know, that's counter-revolution. We need, to me, revolution means all of society is in on the effort. Are you thinking of anything specific today, like any specific anarchist activity, or you're you're, you're talking about a march that's like elitist and separated from society as a whole? Are you thinking of anything specific? You know, like I'll show you an example. Right up the block from here, there's a, a People's Forum. They always got flags and signs, pro Cuba and this and that. You don't see one single sign supporting the Ukrainian. In other words, sure, there's a certain right-wing elements in the Ukraine. There's the involvement with NATO wants to push it. 
But in other words, you that's in this and necessary to see there that the invasion of, of Ukraine was was uh, a disaster, was a, was a crime. So, but they don't mention it. There's not a sign or not a word mentioned in it, and that's a march and center. Yeah, for listeners unfamiliar, so we're in Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan right now, and we're very close to one of, you know, one of the biggest kind of, what I would consider kind of Stalinist, anti-imperialist kind of political, cultural center is very close to us. But it's interesting now, you know, 50 years later, because these kind of politics also existed in 67 or 68. But at least then those movements pretended to be kind of liberatory. Now these kind of authoritarian governments that they support don't even really pretend to be like offering any kind of liberation. They're purely authoritarian, reactionary kind of governments. But now you have this section of the left, a kind of Stalinist, anti so-called anti-imperialist left that just supports dictatorships. And it's really kind of depressing, you know, as a younger person to think about. One of the stories, I think you told me this for the first time, is that you, you were at some demonstration in the late 60s and people were chanting, ho, 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 chi Minh," And you started chanting, let's, let's, let's go Mets. Is that a true story? Actually, yeah, that never happened, but it made me think of... Testing, test. Yeah, the, sorry, the mic turned off. Uh-oh. Um, just from uh, the Let's Go Mets question. You talk about uh, Allen Ginsberg. Do you want to go back to... Let's, all right, so Allen, so he would say Om, which comes from the Tibetan Buddhist uh, persuasion, but I would say arm, and and we we laughed at each other. But we were friends, but he realized that I was saying that there was a real need for armed struggle. That Ohm would not bring us to this change that we needed. But it seems like you know, going back like by '68, you were already skeptical of like the valorization of people like Ho Chi Minh or yeah. Fidel, Correct. or you know, the Soviet Union, etc. That there was this this dynamic where some kind of Maoists or whatever at the time or Stalinists would support them. But at least you know, I'm thinking now, like at least Ho Chi Minh or whatever Fidel would like they would use some kind of revolutionary rhetoric, but now Putin doesn't. There's nothing no, well, revolution- he's not even... A, yeah. he, he's not even a, uh, a disguised... Yeah, he's not pretending. No, yeah. he's just a pure dictator. He's not using Stalinism tactics of, like, using the revolution to be a dictator. He's just a pure dictator. But yet, these... these Marxists are very, uh, certain Marxists are somewhat still reluctant to criticize him mm-hmm. because he nominally came out of Russia. Yeah, so, some still think it's a degenerated workers' state. Yeah. Very degenerated at this point. But. I mean, it's so ironic. You, you, you think it would be like, like it would just hit him in the head to realize that two of the most authoritative authoritarian, repressive regimes on earth are China and Russia. And they both came out of 
this Marxist right. I mean, it should wake up. People should say, well, there must be something wrong with the idea of, of using authoritarian means because we end up with these pure authoritarians. So they, they should re, re, uh, investigate that whole effort. You can't use authoritarianism. Like Lenin was a big authoritarian. You can't use that and, and expect that it's going to lead to revolution. You're going to, it's going to lead to exactly what it led to, Stalin. So this is an example of um, one way that you don't like the contemporary left, especially the Marxist left. But what do you think about the contemporary anarchist movement? I w- you would have to. I would have to hear an example. I could tell you. Oh sure. I, in other words, if somebody says something, I could say I'm in favor of it or against. It. I'm not sure. What well, you're well, like you, to. you talked about uh, affinity groups in the black bloc, and I think that's still the model of a lot of anarchists today. And for the last few years, like during the Trump era, like anti-fascism became sort of the major focus of of that kind of anarchism. Do you what do you think of anti-fascism? I think it's necessary. It may not be the ultimate answer, mm-hmm. but it's necessary. I mean, just think about it. You have this armed militant right wing rampant throughout America. So at demonstrations they come armed. And that and the left the, the what they have is a sign on a stick. But I think, you know, for me, at least at the risk of sounding, I don't know what, but like the increased polarization that happened under Trump, where more and more people were participating in these kind of conflictual arms, street battles, etc. To some extent, I wonder if that's like a false kind of conscious or imaginary of politics or something that like, people, you know, bonking each other on the head in the street, it gives the sense of like some kind of conflict happening. But I'm wondering if it's not the real conflict, you know, it's a kind of a fake or a false conflict in some way. To, yeah, to, yeah. I mean, I understand what, what you're saying. But to me, it, it always seemed really harmful that the only armed opposition is right wing. I mean, it really bothers me. In other words, so if we really ever get to a point where we're going to change America and we're going to uh, institute a new way toward life, if you have this mass of armed people that are in opposition, but yet you have no arms to defend yourself, it's it's absurd. I mean, the, the, the left, they they should be armed as well. Uh, to give another example of contemporary anarchist practice or anti-authoritarian practice, um, Standing Rock a few years ago was a mass mobilization, incredibly popular, and I think it's given the the repercussions of it is that this idea of decolonization is really really popular amongst leftists today, and that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but a a big part of it is giving land back to indigenous nations, uh, shutting down pipelines that run through indigenous land for environmental reasons, justice reasons. And um, who's opposed to that? You think I would oppose that? No, no. I'm just. Uh, I guess I'm just interested because you you were deeply involved in indigenous struggle as well. 
I still am. Um, I guess I just want to ask what your opinion is on those movements today as compared to back then. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it seems to me like a, a, a given that pipelines should be stopped and destroyed. But you're not going to destroy it just with protests. I mean, there should there was two women that that blew up a pipeline. And to get that word out that they did it, they they faced jail time to admit that we blew it up. You're talking about Jessica Resniak? Oh, I'm sorry? The the Jessica Resniak who's currently in prison for like yeah. seven years. Yeah, yeah. So I mean that's that's how strong they their feeling was, and they were correct. So they weren't incorrect in blowing up the pipeline. They were only incorrect in in, betray, in giving them, making themselves uh, uh, obvious who they were. But that those pipelines are all just laying out there. Somebody should do something. Hey everybody, that was our interview with. Ben Morea. Usually I do a little intro before the episode, but I think he did a pretty good job explaining who he was and what the group was. I just wanted to mention that I was doing the interview with Matt Peterson, comrade from the Woodbine Space. You can follow him at Matt Peterson NYC. He's a filmmaker and a writer and a friend of Ben's, so I, it was like the perfect person to interview. Ben with, and we're also both really interested in what was going on in New York City in the 60s and trying to use it as an inspiration for what we do at Woodbine as well. So definitely check out the Woodbine space. And the second part of our conversation with Ben Morea will be released on our Patreon on Friday. In the spirit of the motherfuckers, it will be free on our Patreon. It will not be behind the paywall. But if you're there and you support the show, you can put $5 in the proverbial tip jar and become a patron today and get access to all of our other bonus material. It must begin here and 